When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? This is a board gaming podcast about... Answer the question. I'm so good, Mark. I'm, I'm ready. I am up for this. You're ready? We're doing this. You're ready? This is, this is going down? Yeah, this is happening. All right. We're going to talk about some board games. Bam. We're going to talk about the games that we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter... Then we are going to talk about our feature game, which is Mosaic, a story of civilization. So, Walker, what games did you play this week? Mark, you and I got to play a game called Monumental, and boy, was it monumental. This is designed by Matthew Matthew Dustin. Uh, Matthew Dustin is also the publisher of uh, the the Guild of Merchants Explorers that we played recently and didn't mind. And this is published by Funforge. Monumental Mark, what you're doing is you have this little tableau of a grid of three by three cards. So nine cards. And when it's your turn, you pick a column and a row and you get to activate all those cards. And they do a a variety of things because eventually you're going to be able to modify those cards because they come from a deck and they're giving you resources. They're giving you abilities. All for moving troops around a map and doing interesting stuff. You said interesting stuff. I think I'll quibble with that. I don't think you quite believed that even as you were saying it. Oh, I, I, I was throwing it out there. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. It can be very subjective what interesting Oh, well, that's a very good point. I played Monumental Solo about a year ago when I commented at the time, and I, I said that this is just generic deck building. Felt like a throwback in a number of ways. I didn't really feel like anything interesting was happening. And I felt, you know, I was reflecting lately on how illuminating second and subsequent plays have been for a number of things. Among them, our feature game, actually, because my opinion of our feature game changed considerably as we kept playing it. And second second plays of games like Chaos Order and other things were quite revelatory in a number of ways, which is hardly shocking and one of the reasons why we try to return to things. So I decided to bring Monumental back to the table and show it to you and Huey, and I thought that at least the conceit of building the 3x3 tableau, which is nominally your capital city, and activating the column in the row would, as a gimmick would appeal. And sure enough, it's conceptually very interesting. And that, I think, is the most fascinating thing about the game, and it's not even all that interesting in, in practice. Because in practice, you've got nine cards, you're going to activate five of them. On rare occasions, the spatial limitations are going to cause you to engage in trade-offs. In practice, seldom is this actually the case. And everything about Monumental screams derivative and design for Kickstarter. I will give it credit for this. Monumental does deserve some recognition in the context of vaguely Civ-themed games for paying some attention to civilizations outside the Mediterranean and Western Europe. And in fact, their second Kickstarter, 
which was concluded not too long ago, was exclusively about different African factions, as opposed to, of course, the token African faction, or worse yet, the pan-African faction. So I'll give them credit for that. You know, kudos. Underrepresented groups, you should absolutely make an effort to do those things in the context of Sif-themed games. Other than that, it's just ridiculously bland. I find Monumental so tedious and so repetitive and the attempts to make it interactive and or Civ themed by virtue of its token troops on a map gestures are so peripheral and unengaging and transactional in a bad way that I, I honestly find the experience very pointless. Yeah, there's about four th- different things going on between picking your cards and moving around the board and everything so seems so disjointed. Like it doesn't flow together. It's like sort of... Everything doing its own thing never came together for me. Yes. Grafted on is, is a very good way to explain a lot of the way the different mechanisms interact. The card tableau doesn't even work very well. A number of times we were in positions where we were strong in one currency and we couldn't generate enough currency for what was actually available in the tableau. So that was actually more limiting than anything else. It really leans into churning out a whole bunch of wonders, which again kind of rubs me the wrong way. I'm sick and tired of this idea that the wonders of the world can be crammed into the same geographical area, just divorced of context or historical or geographical significance. And the worst part about it is this is a classic Kickstarter design in that you have this profusion of not useful miniatures. I mean, there are a lot of people online, many of which belong to our guild, who will assert that miniatures are categorically evil and in all instances are not functional. We are not these people. There are, however, some games where your starting troops, for example, do not fit on your starting territory. (laughs) And the miniatures are just there for Kickstarter bling. And honestly, uh, although I do have the miniatures version, I got it in trade. Were I interested in actually owning Monumental or buying the thing, I would encourage you to steer away from the miniatures version. Get the token version. Save yourself some money. Save yourself some of of the unfortunate bloat that our industry is prone to. You'll probably be better off for it. Yeah, because you get to choose a different leader, every, not every, well, every game you could choose a different leader, but there's right. tons of different leaders and every leader has its own troop type. Yes. Like they didn't just say, well, it could be a four player game, so here's four different troop types. No, no, no. That's not enough. We have, right. to have 12 different types of troops. Ridiculous. And yet the fortresses aren't. It's a straight, it's a very, very minor thing. Fortresses are all the same pagoda shape. So it's weird that they have unique sculpts for everything. Unique soldiers, unique leaders who are like three times as tall, unique explorers. Even when I got it, this was before our recent turn towards disdaining waste. Not that we're in any way on the vanguard of that. It's just all things being equal. Unless it serves some sort of purpose, more on that later, we would happy to do more with less. And I think Monumental is a good example of a game where the miniatures are unnecessary. Grafted on is another good way to put it. (laughs) Much like much most of the rules. And that is Monumental, published by Funforge Games. Played another game of Spirit Island. Got to try a spirit I hadn't tried before. We played with the Jagged Earth expansion, and so I tried Volcano Looming High. I find Volcano Looming High fascinating because this is just an indication of how good the lore is for Spirit Island. This spirit was first mentioned in the background text of another spirit, specifically about how they had metaphysical disagreements about the origins of the universe. (laughs) And that's the kind of world building you don't typically see in a board game. Volcano Looming High turned out to be one of those spirits that is rated as moderate complexity, not because they're complicated, but because they're so single-minded. Volcano Looming High can only build in mountains, but oh boy, do they ever... (laughs) 
they they're, they're, they have ways to project their influence past that. Basically, they build up into huge stacks, and then they blow up and destroy things. So very straightforward gameplay, but limited and narrow. Not unlike one of my other favorite spirits, Ocean's Hungry Grasp. I don't think it was one of my all-time favorites, though. However, Huey played as Lightning Swift Strike with one of the aspects. For those that are unfamiliar, all the low-complexity spirits of the base game now have aspects, which are just ways to customize that spirit. You might change their power, you might change some of their special abilities. And Lightning Swift Strike in our group has always evolved into a support spirit. Despite the fact that on paper it is about destroying towns, in practice, very often what they do is get subordinated into a support ability to make other people act faster in the round. And one of the aspects very much plays into into that very much makes lightning swift strike a strong support element huey managed to walk that balance almost perfectly between managing his own offense and being able to give uh his colleagues namely myself and dewey some support benefits to act, make us move faster and more efficiently in other words it was a great example of cooperation that spirit island tends to produce and i can't wait to try all the new stuff that is in the new target exclusive horizons of spirit island it's been trickling in and out of stock i'll probably be able to get my copy before too long one hopes to say nothing of the future content that's coming in later as has been made evidently clear, I'm a huge fan of Spirit Island. There's always new stuff to explore, and I cannot wait to explore all of it. This is designed by, full disclosure, a personal friend of mine, R. Eric Royce, published by Greater Than Games, and the Jagged Earth expansion was published in 2020. Mark and I got to play a review copy that we got called Ragusa. This is designed by Fabio Lupiano and published by Braincrack Games and Capstone Games. So in Ragusa, you're, you have a, a number of houses, depending on the number of players, and you simply place one on the board somewhere when it's your turn, and when the houses run out, the game is over. The houses let you engage the territory or increase your uh, supply of goods, or so you're sort of more like a threshold of goods. And I enjoyed my play of Ragusa. You're also building this wall, which is going to lead to end game scoring. It also sort of uh, limits where you get to place houses because you have to build up, like I said, that threshold of, of wood or stone. But like Mark's going to say in a moment, we're going to talk about uh, first player advantage in Ragusa. <laughs> what I was actually going to talk about is Ragusa is fine. It's a very functional, serviceable game. I'd forgotten how quick it was, and that's definitely something in its favor. We're talking about 45 to 60 minutes with three players. And that's commendable, given that it is not a trivial game. There's some interesting trade-offs with respect to building up those thresholds, as you said, versus activating buildings and knowing when to get in where is surprisingly subtle. However, the hugest problem I have with Ragusa is that it is not Kalamala. And yes, they're both designed by the same designer, but that's not the only similarity. They are both somewhat clever action placement processes married to scoring elements. And for my taste, the scoring elements in Kalamala are vastly more interesting. In Ragusa, mostly you get your points by converting goods into buying stuff. You're either selling the goods at market with a somewhat floating price, or you're buying these point cards with, with those same goods. So you're just converting this wine into two points, the silver into four points, what have you. Kalamala is all area majority scoring. And indeed, if you strongly dislike area majority scoring, as the alpha gamer did with whom we were playing, then probably Ragusa is going to be more to your tastes. 
But given that I not only prefer the action selection mechanism in Kalamala, but I also strongly prefer a majority scoring by virtue of the fact that it's more interactive and leads to, I find, more tense competition rather than a more calculational affair, I will always prefer Kalamala. Kalamala is an amazing Euro game, one of the best of the past 10 years, I think. And Ragusa's chief sin is that it is not Kalamala. One other point about Ragusa that I enjoyed is that there are this is decision on where to place your house. Because if you go into an area that already has houses, it's going to, in some in most cases, it's going to activate that whole ring of houses. So you have to decide whether it's advantageous to you to activate all those houses because you might have some houses in there or is it going to allow someone to complete their wall section who wasn't going to in the first place yeah again i not to repeat myself in ragusa if you build a house somewhere it is going to activate every single time anyone places there for the rest of the game so in the three four five player game if a couple of people have already showed up there you're not particularly inclined to go jump in because they're always going to get more advantage from that than you are in kalamala those discs those actions you make age out and so it is not the case that you will forever be reaping dividends for having shown up first it leads to more dynamism it means that you don't have to write off entire areas of the board, or at least you're not subtly encouraged to. So that's another instance in which I think that, as you say, player order can matter a little bit more than I'd like, and I prefer the action selection mechanism of Kalamala. Did you know that he designed Kalamala? Have I, I did. Ma- I think you mentioned that. Have beginning. I mentioned Kalamala? I, I don't know that I... Anyway. We'll say it again, and if you did, we'll just edit it out, and then we'll be good. You're not the boss of me. That is Ragusa wanting to be Kalamala, a review copy <laughs> given us to us by the publisher... That was kind of an up top. I know. I like, I like how that went. It was like, my oh, you like that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's good. Leaving them on their edge of their seats. <laughs> I finally got to try Dead Reckoning by John D. Clare. John D. Clare is a designer who's done Mystic Veil. He's done a number of different card crafting games. He did Edge of Darkness. Mystic Veil, Walker quite likes. Edge of Darkness is a topic of great revulsion in our circles for how little we liked it. And I was not looking forward to trying Dead Reckoning. Pirates don't do a whole heck of a lot for me thematically, and John D. Clare's track record is so middling that I really, really didn't think that I was going to enjoy it. And the campaign elements had been exaggerated to me. I thought that by default, Dead Reckoning was some sort of campaign game. It's not. And to be frank, by not a small margin, I found Dead Reckoning to be John DeClaire's best work. I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was very pleasant. It did kind of, sort of, almost sandboxy type stuff. Now, and as I've commented before in a number of different areas, sandboxes are very difficult to do in the board game space, and typically they end up with either vaguely degenerate strategies or multiplayer solitaire or far too much randomness. I mean, Legends of uh, Zaya, Legends of a Drift System, Western Legends, they, they, they all run afoul of these to varying extent. But in Dead Reckoning, there's taking control of islands, producing from those islands, engaging in trade, which you're all encouraged to do in rapid succession. And you can't really specialize too much. I mean, it, it, you, you could try, but it's not really all that viable. So naturally, what we found ourselves falling into in a steady rhythm was doing a little bit of everything. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty fighty this turn based on what I have in my hand. I think I'm going to go bust some teeth. And the combat system is very good at encouraging you to get into fights. The consequences are generally reasonably positive for both people, whether they win or lose. And yes, there's damage to your ship, but hey, if you get sunk, it's not a huge deal. You'll just show up fully healed. It's not a massive inconvenience. It's not ideal, but it's not going to set you back a full turn or anything of that nature. If you have a hand that's great at taking control of islands, go take somebody's island. If you 
want to produce some goods, you can go... Anyway, you'll be encouraged to do a lot of different things that we associate with various pirate options. And that much I very much appreciated. There are several ways to improve your cards, which on the one hand is great, on the other hand is a minor niggle of mine, because I find it invariably the case, as invariably the rules explainer, everyone just uses the word upgrade for everything. This is also a huge problem with Cerebria. Every time I teach Cerebria the inside world, I'm like, okay, upgrade is a specific thing. Anything else that improves anything is not an upgrade. Don't call it that. Similarly, in Dead Reckoning, people are like, how do I upgrade? It's like, there's there's no upgrade. There are advancements, and there's leveling up. What are you talking about? And then they look at me blankly. Anyhow, <laughs> I wonder if anyone else has had this experience teaching games like Dead Reckoning. I'm now curious to try some of the, the additional sagas, they say, whereby you introduce some new cards to the decks right away. Other cards get introduced after further plays. It's a little bit longer than I'd like. A solid half hour per player, so it was, a, it was a full two hours with four players. And I don't know that that's ideal, but you do have something to do when it's not your turn. Namely, look at your hand, figure out what's going to happen, and also level up one of your characters. That was a, a little clever nod to the idea of downtime. And so I'm looking forward to going back to Dead Reckoning, seeing what else it has to, has to offer. Yeah, we often have the complaint that in games like this, when you get your cards, you're just going to do what the cards dictate you're going to do, because we've talked about this in other games. But in Dead Reckoning, because you sort of have a movement allowance every turn, you sort of have multiple options you can do that. Even though you have a handful of fight cards, it's not just, well, I'm going to fight the thing that I fight. There's You have... Not a huge plethora of things, but there is there are options out there. That's a good point. And I was I'm wondering if nothing to do with the gameplay, mm -hmm. just like an overall sort of deja vu vibe. Did you ever get like a sort of sea fall sort of like moment when you looked across the board? <laughs> Only because you brought it up, but yes, there is a sort of visual consonance with Seafall. And even in terms of some of the things you're doing, like you can go attack islands, you can go influence islands, et cetera, et cetera. But any resemblance is purely at the surface level insofar as <laughs> Seafall was a tedious chore. True. And but Dead Reckoning is vastly, vastly more pleasurable. It's just very visually similar. And, I agree. And it's almost as though they used like the, the piles of Seafall games that are around there to do <laughs> for, for playtesting materials? For playtesting materials. <laughs> it's possible. You, you, you couldn't pay people to take Seafall <laughs> And what'd you think of the cube tower? I always thought that was a novel idea because not many, I haven't seen a game that did that before. I'm a little bit nervous about the cube tower because when cubes fall off the map, they're misses. And so whoever dumps the cubes might have an incentive to play fast and loose with dumping it far too early. Oh, that would be. I know. I know. Okay. I'm just saying. Just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. But as a way to resolve combat quickly and with a variety of different results, including plunder, I, th I think it's very effective at what it seeks to do mechanically. So that's Dead Reckoning by John D. Clare. My, by far, my favorite John D. Clare game by Alderac Entertainment Group. It was kickstarted and fulfilled this year. And the second Kickstarter campaign featuring expansion material and a reprint, Letters of Mark, is available for a late pledge now. Lastly for me, we streamed a game of Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Collector's edition. Only, <laughs> only plebs, Mark, play the normal edition. <laughs> and I have to say, it does make a... It, this is one of these things where, unlike, you know monumental where everything got, just got in the way and was unnecessary. This did have a little a little bit of unnecessary plastic. There's these giant towers and these card trays, but the card trays 
I believe were very useful because you had stacks of, of discards and your draw cards that I'm sure would be knocked over and uh, place to place the chips. So they would be high stacking chips and they would be knocked over either. Same thing, a draw pile and a discard I don't remember pile. things falling over all the time. All the time, cast. Mark. It was, oh, sorry, it was, sorry, it sorry. Was, my apologies. It was terrible. Okay. Anyway, I played Mad King... Uh, Mad Kiglingwood uh, once long, long ago in person and a few times there's an app as well. What you're doing is you're, it's sort of like an I split, you choose sort of mechanism. Uh, it goes around the table in clockwise order and they're the, I think the master guild member or some such. Master builder. Master builder. And they get to set the prices for all the different map pieces. And but they get to choose last. So they sort of can look and see what people are looking for or maybe, you know, price something that they want very high so no one else can afford it. They can see how much money everyone has and put out tiles accordingly. And and there's all sorts of different tiles like bedrooms and hallways and dungeons and, and they all score by being, you know, adjacent to other certain rooms or even get negative points. Like you can't put the giant opera theater next to the bedroom. People don't like that. Think of the sex parties. Stuff like that. And what this uh, collector's edition has, it has this module called the towers. And there are these giant plastic towers that you're going to get. And they're just more rooms that you can draft. And once you've completed them, you get the tower and it allows you to draw end game scoring discs that will only apply to you. And this sort of turned it into a little bit of ticket to ride, mm. right? Because you're just grabbing these towers for the sake of getting towers, drawing three of these these things, which say, may oh, be things you've already been yeah, building it's like, or oh, not. Look, yeah. oh, I have a, a few bedrooms. I'm definitely going to have the you know the most square footage of that, and then that on top of the normal cards that you're going to get anyway, because, right? Because every time you complete a room, which means that you've sort of blocked off all the exits with other rooms or hallways, every different type of room has a different special ability, and one is drawing more you know, personal scoring cards. And there are like four, four to five, depending on the number of players, uh, discs for everyone to score at the end. I think the Castles of Mad King Ludwig gets by a lot on its charm. And I don't mean this dismissively. It's a very, very charming game. The fact that all these rooms are of different sizes and you're building this, no two castles are going to end up the same. They're very visually distinctive and they have these charming little, like you can build an underground lake. You can literally have a dungeon. You can have some sort of weird purple bedroom that for some reason is all purple. And it's just whimsical and delightful in a way that the uh, very similar other Allspac tile laying game, Suburbia, is not. Suburbia, on the other hand, is just very, very dry to me. Perfectly functional, but not especially fun. Whereas Castles of Mad King Ludwig mechanically is very, very similar and just utterly delightful by virtue of its visuals. I didn't play the Deluxe Collector's Edition. I wasn't invited. I must have been one of the plebs. But I'd be somewhat curious to see it in action. Although, again, part of me wonders whether this is just part and parcel of, of things getting out of control. It, it was very enjoyable to me. I, I'll be more than happy to play it again. It was. I found it lots of fun. Oh, I'll happily play Castles of Mad King Lopey. It's a fun game. Because you can like sort of limit yourself because you can get to build this sort of moat into a tight square and then you can sort of force yourself to build, you know, in these interesting things. And yeah, that was get, part of the first expansion of the original game, yeah. Getting things to just fit is just rewarding. It's like tile laying, but it's even, you know, more deluxe than that. Really enjoyed it. Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Play the game of Space Weirdos. Space Weirdos is a skirmish heartbreaker, a tabletop miniatures game design 
by Casey Gursky, published by Gursky Games last year after a very, very modest crowdfunding campaign, because we're talking now about super indie tabletop miniatures games that do not have any associated miniatures game line. This Walker is a heartbreaker, and canonically, this is the canonical version of of what type of document it is. This is a zine format. Oh. So I now get to use Walker's two least favorite words, namely canon and zine. Was that shudder picked up by the microphone? Bingo. Anyhow, a heartbreaker, as it happens, is a term in the role-playing universe for fan-made quote-unquote fixes to popular systems, usually D&D. They're called heartbreakers apparently because they usually have one or two elements of genius buried in, in a mountain of dross. And so it's kind of heartbreaking to see it's like, oh, that's a great feature, but I, uh, I can't really, it just uh, doesn't hold together. And so the, this is supposed to be a skirmish heartbreaker, clearly a response to the 800-pound elephant in the industry, Games Workshop. So this is a skirmish-level sci-fi game that is miniatures agnostic, has an interesting cut-and-dried uh, resolution mechanism whereby everybody has a stat for whatever it is you're trying to do, and you can either be rolling 2d4 all the way to 2d12, and modifiers, by and large, there are some exceptions, just mean you roll better or worse dice. So if you normally have 2d8, but you're firing at somebody in cover, well, that gets downgraded to 2d6. And if your defense value is 2d4, but it turns out you've been moving really, really fast this turn, well, that might get upgraded all the way to 2d8. Stuff like that. That part was all great. The army building is great. The fact that it's a minimalist document that doesn't really leave a whole lot out is great because, and this is one of the deep, dark secrets of tabletop miniatures games, it doesn't matter, in my experience, whether the document is 300-page, 8.5 by 11 hardcover, a la Games Workshop or something of that nature, or if it's going to be a 16-page zine-sized document, as Space Weirdos is going to be, you and your opponent are going to have radically different intuitions about what makes sense, or what the rules mean, or what is expected when we talk about things like line of sight. You can write 500 pages about what line of sight means. There are going to be disagreements. It's just inevitable, so you may as well roll with it, and accept the fact that you, you're going to be playing with somebody for the sake of having fun, and just be willing to find compromise where it happens. This is just true of all miniatures rule system in my experience. So, the part that I found where Space Weirdos kind of started to buckle under its design decisions was in the casualty system. Because as we commented in an entirely different kind of game, namely the Siege of Mantua, if you're rolling lots of dice, but only some of the die rolls are super consequential, you might get into serious trouble. And in Space Weirdos, once you're actually hit if it's the case that an attack roll overcomes the defense roll, you'll end up rolling a scantily modified 2d6 throw where the results can range all the way from you are unharmed and in point of fact get to counterattack all the way to you're straight dead. You're not going to be doing this very much over the course of the game because it's a small model engagement game, you know, five to eight to ten models per side. So generally speaking, this is not going to be something you're going to be pitching a whole lot of the time. And yeah, 2d6 is going to give you a nice little even distribution curve, but if it's the case that the first couple of rolls of the game happen to be aberrant, that can really skew things. Now, this is my going into a lot of detail about the competitive disadvantages about a game that is meant to be played fast, loose, and friendly. And I would happily play Space Weirdos again. It was very charming in its army building, despite the fact that it's very simple in its rules. It's by no means simplistic. I've, I've read lots of more complicated rule systems where I look at the army building and say, this is boring. What do I care whether, oh, okay, this has 12-inch range, this is 24-inch range, whatever. Fine, now I need to care about whether this is a plasma carbine or a plasma rifle for each one of my 53 different troops. Oh, and I start falling asleep. This is why I've never played 40K, for example. 
But there were lots of different options and choices. And once I remembered that I have a HeroScape collection full of marrow, for those of you that remember marrow, I immediately knew what my space weirdos had to be. For a while, I was thinking, well, I've got a whole lot of Panoceania from Infinity, but that's a very narrow kind of near-future Miltech aesthetic. I don't know if it really fits. Uh, I don't want to do the same boring thing I always do. Ah, yeah, marrow. Weird skeleton dudes holding plasma rifles riding skeleton horses. Sounds great. At any rate, I'm curious to see whether my misgivings about specifically the casualty roles will bear out, and I suspect I will have an opportunity before too long to comment back on that. So, that was Space Weirdos, The Skirmish Heartbreaker. I love looking at these super indie rule sets. Uh, Some of them actually make it to the table, and when they do, I'm glad to see that they're at least cute and diverting. And Space Weirdos was definitely both of those things. It's interesting how these sort of, there's totally two different houses, right? There's the like you said, zines, when people write up alterations to role-playing systems. And you and I will be more than happy to try any and all of those, and many other people would. But if someone had written like a sort of sub-rule set to a board game, I'm sure we'd both be running into the night screaming <laughs> while burning it and crushing it into nothingness. That is a, that's an excellent point, and I suspect there are many reasons for that. So we got to play our review copy of Oathsworn into the Deepwood again. We had commented before, this is the, this is the fantasy campaign system where first you do some choose-your-own-adventure storytelling bits, and then you face off in a usually, it seems, boss fight-adjacent sort of deal. We praised the writing, we praised the setting, we praised a lot of the aesthetics, and this time what we did was we just launched straight into the boss fight again because we lost the first time. Things were made slightly easier by virtue of A, getting right a couple of rules that I'd gotten wrong before, and B, by virtue of the fact that we just lowered the difficulty level. Walker, what were your thoughts on our second outing of Oathsworn into the Deepwood? Not good. Mostly the same as last time. Once again, we got trounced. Um, Crushed, really. Crushed. And like I said, while we're playing, it's like you're... You're fighting your board more than you're fighting the monster. In order to just do very little damage, you're fighting to get enough energy to do an ability, which lets you place the ability in this wheel that you have to fight to get it out of. And then you're fighting the dice because one third of the time you're going to roll a blank, which will lead to a miss. It's it's very frustrating. Okay, so I actually quite like the ability card management. It reminds me a little tiny bit of the way building is handled in Barrage. Namely, resources are locked into a wheel, and there are ways you can manipulate the wheel to get those resources out faster. It's a bit of a strained analogy, but I find it a pleasant restriction rather than a frustrating chore. But Well, if it lead to more payoff, it would be... Interesting, but it it just leads to... Well, it's just the idea that you can't use the same ability cards over and over and over again. And by and large, as far as the energy management goes, I similarly find that to be a fine restriction. It's it's it, it gives you a slight bit more flexibility than you get one move action and one attack action, or, you know, two actions in your turn. So there's a little bit more flexibility there and a little bit more ways to game that, but most of the time it's relatively straightforward. The part where I agree with you is just in the resolution system. Now, to their credit, the designers of Oathsworn Into the Deepwood have given you two different ways to manage your resolution system. You can either do a result card system, so there are varying decks of varying intensity, or you can just sub it with dice. Largely for reasons of convenience, I have just started using dice for my attacks. They strongly recommend continuing to use cards for the enemies, so that's what we did by and large. Cards for the enemies, dice for us. Now, 
Dealing with the cards is a pain because they're constantly reshuffling those decks. It's not like Gloomhaven. In Gloomhaven, everyone has their own resolution deck, and you don't shuffle them all the time. In fact, the round where you reshuffle them is more or less the exception. I found we spent a lot more time just mucking around with cards, especially since the boss was regularly, you would regularly get attacks of three yellow and three white, or two red and three yellow. It's like, okay, we'll pull out all these cards, sum up the values, and then do the math. Anyway, I found it a little bit painful in that sense. And the dice were super frustrating, as you said. So basically, no matter how much you upgrade your attack, every sh- every face has a 1 in 3 chance of just outright missing. And if you get two misses on an attack, your entire attack whiffs. Nothing happens. You get some compensation. Any tokens you spent to, up- to buff your attack, they come back and you get another token. I had several attacks that I set up laboriously, you know, manage my cards properly to get them in the right place at the right time. And then I twice had attacks for which I'd been very conservative completely miss. I have a reasonably low frustration threshold, and I found it extremely frustrating. But going back to the cards, again, we're all pulling from the same cards, just more cards to deal with. I'm not sure that's a solution either. So I'm not sure what to do about that. I'm not sure about the selection for the first mission that you're bringing people into. I know we've already talked about, you know, like sort of the baby mode where you you're, you know, right. you just destroy the first mission. But at least at least something. This is, seems awfully difficult for the very first time, especially when, like I said, you're already struggling with these other systems to have like a boss and and this this giant pushing out other mini figures all of the time without you know spoilers. It seems like a, a bit much. <laughs> I don't mind really difficult games. The problem is I'm not sure what we're doing wrong. Right, like this isn't Spirit Island, which is very low luck very wide and deep decision space of a lot of different things you could do at any time. This is mostly about, you know, smacking creatures around and your job is to kill a giant monster. And I'm not... If if I had this idea where I could look back, and I can often do this when I lose a game, I look back and say, you know, that was it. That was the thing I did. I should have done the other thing. Or if that had broken the other way. At this point, the only thing that I can remember, maybe this is me being myopic. Maybe this is just my frustration speaking. The most thing I can remember is... If I'd hit with those two attacks, <laughs> if I'd missed less, then maybe we would have won. And that's not a good place to be. Now, the world is sufficiently compelling, and I'm sufficiently curious what Scenario 2 looks like makes me want to see it. I don't know if that means that that Huey and I, because he's he's interested in going back, should bash our faces against the, the, uh, the, the boss again, or maybe we should just say we won and skip to Scenario 2. I'm not sure. Well, we'll have to find out. I definitely would like to keep pushing forward. Why? I, well, I want to see... Because you've been almost exclusively negative. Well, in this particular segment. I, I, so I'm, it's true. I'm curious. No, I agree. No, just because the, you can upgrade all your cards. And we got to see some of that at the early on in that first mission. And you're going to get upgraded weapons and all of the monsters are completely hidden. We have yes. no idea what's going to come up. None. Like we said, the story was halfway decently compelling. So I'd like to, you know, listen to more of that. And I would like to see what we're, like you said, what we might be doing wrong. Maybe there's just sort of this balance that we're not quite hitting. I could easily imagine the difficulty level dropping considerably after the first mission because we just have, there's no give in any of our abilities whatsoever. We've got stock beginning game equipment. In particular, uh, my character's attacks are very feeble. The same is true of both of Huey's characters that he's chosen. We've, we've been mixing up the characters between the two games we've played, myself accepted because I'm a stubborn human being. And I suspect that with slightly better equipment and a tiny bit of upgrade, 
that's going to open up the things considerably. But maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, suffice to say that despite our frustrations, and we both have different sets of frustrations that have been mounting, we find it sufficiently compelling that we want to go back. So that's not nothing. It's true. I don't know if it warrants four massive boxes, though. <laughs> yeah, the, the models are amazing. The like, models are really, really good. <laughs> top notch. And and one of the one of the Kickstarter campaign bonuses was you can swap out arms of your miniature to represent what they're wielding. That's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, so that's been our future uh, subsequent experience with Oathsworn into the Deepwood. It looks like we're going to be having more. So look forward to that. Stay tuned. Finally, for me, I got to try Battlecrest Fellwood's base game. So Battlecrest is a game that was kickstarted by Buttonshy only a few months ago. And they said, well, if you pledge for the print and play, you'll have files in August. And sure enough, on August 31st, I got an email telling me that I had Battlecrest. I love campaigns like this. Give me $5, and in a few weeks, you will have a print and play file, which constitutes a full game. Huzzah! I'm not going to say that that's the platonic ideal of crowdfunding, but it certainly makes me very happy as a backer. So I printed out the cards, read up on the rules, and played a quick dueling game with Chip the Third. And it was honestly pretty cheerful. I think in terms of card action management, which is again something that it shares with Oathsworn into the Deepwood, it has a, a, a rather clever way to do it. Basically, you have these double-sided action cards, and one of the things you can do is activate one of them. That exhausts it. You can't use it again for either defense or for its ability, but it generates one of the eponymous crests, powering your other abilities. At a certain point, both because you desperately want to be able to tap cards for defense and because you're running out of options, you're going to be forced to refresh your cards, and in so doing, they untap and they all flip over, changing the abilities, therefore. And so you really want to time things carefully, particularly one of the things you can do that makes you feel clever is you look at one of your attacks that gets boosted by a particular kind of crest, look at both sides of the card and figure, okay, once I get the cards on this side and these ones tapped and these not ones tapped, I will attack for mucho damage. It makes you feel very clever. It's nice. The card management was interesting. It was a little static in terms of movement. It was a little bit of, well, we meet up in the middle and we just start slugging each other to a certain extent. There was some reason to move around, but not a whole heck of a lot. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in some of the expansion material. Now, as of now, as of launch, the expansions that are available are more heroes and a solitaire mode, which I haven't tried. But what I want is new terrain. It's a modular game. You each pick your own hero and you fight over a certain battlefield. The battlefield I thought was uninspired. It didn't encourage us to go to specific landmarks or jockey for position or what have you. And I think that would lead to more interesting game states, to be frank. As it was, it was cute and clever. It was certainly worth the amount of money that I paid for it. It was also worth the laborious efforts of my cutting out all the cards because I've been doing this for years. I still cannot cut in a straight line. I'm still that kid in kindergarten who didn't want to do arts and crafts. Thank you very, very much. It's very embarrassing and painful. And uh, some fellow podcasters, Walker, have publicly mocked me for it, even when I was doing them favors. Well, may maybe they won't make you use the safety scissors anymore. Maybe one day you'll upgrade to the big person scissors. I can only hope. At any rate, I thought it was enjoyable. It was certainly worth what I paid for it. I really like Buttonshy's distribution model and their publishing model. I am very curious to try more of their designs. I'm probably going to go into their web shop, probably get some more print and play stuff and see what they have to offer. I found very interesting their previous exper experience that I tried from them, Sprawlopolis. Not my kind of game, very headachey spatial puzzle, but given that, it was very clever what they did with a very small set of cards. Thus, I am curious about the rest of their catalog. So that was Battlecrest, Fellwood's base game. And those are the games we played this week. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? 
Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket. Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Hey, Mark. Yes, Walker? We have a Patreon. Do we? We do. You do a great segment called Bloat that people are very much enjoying. We talk about upcoming Kickstarters and things on GameFound with our Pledge of Indifference. Lots of things going on. You can always check it on. Check it out on Patreon.com. If there's something there you like, plenty of different pledge levels. Check it out. So uh, just one note about our Patreon. This is a bit of a public service announcement as well as an announcement of some of our editorial policies. We don't spend a whole lot of time talking about our editorial policies here on the main show. That is one of the things that I do an awful lot on Bloat and sometimes uh, another show we do called So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad. We don't take any money or any gifts from any designers or any publishers. So here's the thing. If you are a patron of ours and you are a game publisher or a game designer, don't tell us about it. Don't let us know, because if we know that you're a patron, we're going to have to refund you your money. If we don't know that you're a patron, everything is fine, because it can't influence our behavior if we don't know anything about it. We've had to do this a number of times over the course of the past year. It's always unpleasant for everyone involved, but it is very much one of our policies. So again, if we're ever apt to cover anything you do in the games industry, and you're a patron, please don't let us know. So, Fun Facts is a game coming out by Repo Productions. They've also done games like So Clover and Just One. So this game, Fun Facts, Mark, it looks like it's sort of a take on wits and wagers. You have these acrylic uh, chevrons that are going to go in a row. All of the trivia questions have to do with numbers. You're going to be putting out the answers in a certain order. Looks very interesting. And So Clover and Just One are so fantastic. It's pretty well an auto try for me. Fun Facts. Fun Facts. So David Thompson is going to be collaborating with the host of Beyond Solitaire for a game about the Night Witches. Walker, are you familiar with the Night Witches? No. This is not a trick question, Walker. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Night Witches. (laughs) I'm just not sure who's listening, Mark. (laughs) 
The Night Witches were a unit of all-female fighter and bomber pilots during World War II in Soviet Russia. They were the 588th Night Bomber Regiment. Uh, they were all. They were previously the subject of a game by Jason Morningstar, he of Fiasco and Durance fame, and I've always wanted to try that. It's a narrative game masterless role playing system about the Night Witches, and now uh, David Thompson, the host of Beyond Solitaire, are going to be designing a uh, presumably a solitaire design about the Night Witches. Looking forward to that. Sounds cool. We really love the art of hidden leaders. There's going to be another game called Almost Innocent. I've already, we've already talked about it, but it is only has a few days left on Kickstarter. So if you want to check it out, it's a cooperative deduction game. That sounds interesting. I've pledged. Check it out. Read the rules. Seems cool. There is a game based on a music festival, Mark. It's called Come Together. This is going to be published by Chili Fox Games, designed by Vingard Elstein Stilgrud. And it's about a music festival. The art's very charming, very 70-ish, and you're sort of, you know, building this group of, of bands, and uh, it's got, it's come together because I think you have to, you get a worker placement, so you get to put your worker on a spot, but it doesn't get to do anything until someone comes there with you. I, I think it might also be called that because of the Beatles lyric. Mm, Beatles, what, is that, <laughs> is that one of these new funky bands? Jeez. Yes. It could also be because of that. <laughs> Purely, purely coincidentally. Come together. Right now. Such a good baseline. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our main review of the show, Mosaic, a story of civilization. Mosaic, a story of civilization was designed by Glenn Drover of Forbidden Games. And this is a review copy we got from the publisher. Glendrover's an interesting designer. He first kind of burst into the sphere with a whole bunch of, let's be frank, copies. In 2005, he published Conquest of the Empire, which was basically a redesign of Martin Wallace's Struggle of Empires. Then there was Railroad Tycoon, which was basically a redesign of Age of Steam and is now known as Railways of the World. And shortly thereafter, in 2007, he published an original design, but it was still licensed on a computer game, very much like Railroad Tycoon, called Age of Empires 3, which was subsequently rebranded after they lost the license as Empire's Age of Discovery, which, if you're willing to get past the unapologetically colonial theme, is actually a pretty clever worker placement slash area majority game, which is right up my alley. His more recent designs include the rhyming Raccoon Tycoon and Lizard Wizard, which are card-drafting, tableau-building games with anthropomorphic animals, because everything have to has, has to have anthropomorphic animals lately, whereas Mosaic, A Story of Civilization, does not involve any rhyming and is a Sib-themed game. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Mosaic, A Story of Civilization? Mosaic is the type of game that I really enjoy, where the game state slowly evolves, and when it's your turn, you have several things you want to do. So much to do, you really need to prioritize which is most important. There is the des uh, the desirable card for the rest of the table. There's get more symbols so when you play another card, it's more powerful. Improve your bank so you're never caught short because it's one of these games where something might pop up all of a sudden and you don't have the funds in order to buy that card or place that city and you want to make sure you always have a running bank. All of this is balanced on an edge where you don't know when scoring will happen. It's like, do I need to do this now? Do I think scoring is going to happen anytime? So it's sort of like this sort of cat and mouse game. 
The tension in action decision is surprisingly pointed and enjoyable, I think, for, for Mosaic. Because you're exactly right. You're, you're constantly being pulled in a number of different directions against the backdrop of uncertain timing and less than perfect certainty about what your opponents are apt to do. Because there's a whole bunch of different kinds of cards you can take. Some of them are going to help you build. Some of them are technologies. Some of them... Some of the technologies you get just because they're toys, some of the techs you get just because you need the symbols, and then you, as you say, you need to worry about whether you have the resources for that next thing, so maybe you want to delay to do that, and then you're worried about, well, I could do production now, or I could take the population card so my production's higher. So it's a lot of what we talk about in terms of efficiency euros. You talked about that very pointedly in terms of, well, sometimes the ordering is super important. But here in Mosaic, yes, the order of all these things is very important, but you've got this great element of tension by virtue of the player interaction, and the uncertainty of when scoring is going to happen, that I think you're right. The, the, the sense of being pulled in so many different directions is the key to the tension in the terms of experience of the game. Agreed. So much like the story of a civilization, we need to start at the very beginning, Mark, with setup. That's profound. That's profound. You like that? I, I, put, I underlined it, too, that's, and put that, it in that, bold. That's a segue and a half. It deserves, it deserves bold italic I, underline, oh, man. Yeah, I put it all on there. Oh, you do that. All right. So the setup is not, not nothing. I... I Almost purposely left it for you the one time. So you sort of experience. Oh, yeah. So first you have to set up your player board. Then you need to seed the main board with 176 tokens. You have to. Sh you don't put all of them up, but yeah, there, there are a lot. You, you shuffle and prepare and need to prepare four decks of cards. You have to pick leaders and collect all the starting resources based on that leader. You have to draft five starting techs and then finally place a city. And then after that, you are now ready to play. Well, at least the drafting of the leader and the placing of the city, that's kind of when the game has already started and the drafting of the initial text. That, they're, they're at least you're playing a game. Setting out the tiles is obnoxious. Setting up the decks is also obnoxious, you know, because sometimes it's just divide the deck into segments and then shuffle in the scoring card at the bottom. Sometimes it's, well, there are two different kinds of cards. Make sure there's an equal number of both and then shuffle those and then divide it and then shuffle a card to the bottom of the deck. Now, this is a classic case of many hands make for light work. One person can be in charge just of putting out the tiles, and other people can be in charge of setting out the decks. But you're right. It's a non-trivial amount of setup. It's not a deal-breaker by any stretch of the imagination, and it's not egregious given the length of the game. But there's a fair amount to be done. Well, I have this near the bottom, but let's just hit on it now, because we're talking about so much about these. What These are our trade good tiles, and you're seeding this board with these tons of tiles, and they're all flipped up, and the ones with the X's are removed, so you have sort of this, you know, hodgepodge pattern across. Intermittent, sporadic. Exactly. Yes of all these trade goods. So there's the the setup of all these trade goods, and then there's half of your board dedicated to placing them. And I think there is little to no payoff for these trade goods for would, the amount of work that you were putting in to representing them in the game. The, there is a disproportionate amount of space to the com, of the components devoted to trade goods. I wouldn't say it's little to no payoff because you get them pretty much for free. You get them whenever you build anything on top of them. And you seldom build just to get the trade goods. You're usually building because you want the city independently or you want the town independently or what have you or the wonder. So it's mostly like I'm building the Colossus of Rhodes. Where am I going to build the Colossus? Oh, well, that one gives me silk. I don't have silk yet. Okay, I'll take that one. So it's not... <laughs> I, I grant you that visually it's it's a little discordant. It's one of those things that could throw a first-time player thinking that it's more important than it is, but I'm willing to forgive it. Yeah, I, I, I really wish it, there's cards that say for each different trade good you had. I just wish that was just sort of across the board scoring. More frequently that, would you score I, for those things? Yeah, I Or just it. for everybody. At the end of the game, you get an X number of points for each different trade good you have. And I think that would lead to way more incentive 
to, to spreading out and doing other things. I think Maybe. That, that, anyway, enough. No, I hear you. It's, I don't know that the, that a game of mosaic wants there to be more scoring conditions. I actually kind of like that. It's relatively, I say relatively here, relatively focused. Now there's a lot of different texts and a lot of different buildings that will give you scoring conditions up the wazoo. But if you want to put them, those all into a bucket, right? There's the cards you get from scoring. There's the cards you get from buildings. And that's kind of sort of all you do at the end of the game. And I don't know that you want to add on a whole bunch of other scoring conditions to that because, again, speaking personally, I like the, the kind of degree of focus. Because, after all, one of the key points of comparison, since we're talking about scoring, between Mosaic and other games is Terraforming Mars. It has been compared frequently by a number of people to Terraforming Mars. I can see why. You spend a lot of time worrying about the icons that your cards are generating. Possibly because you want to be the first to get to a six threshold, and that'll give you a scoring condition. Possibly because you bought a card that'll give you one point for every harp you have at the end of the game, so now you're buying harps. Or because you want to put out that tech that has a prerequisite, and so you want to play the prerequisite first. The salient difference, to me, between the heads-down, solo, overcomplicated, overlong, no-player-interaction elements of Terraforming Mars, and the more compelling, more straightforward, more engaging mosaic story of civilization, is that your cards don't have scoring actions themselves. You're not spending your entire time manipulating your tableau to get your points. And the fact that the board is more consequential in mosaic than it is in Terraforming Mars. Is it as consequential as its size would warrant? No. But at least I find it more consequential than a lot of other tableau builders. Yeah, at the end game, you're going to have these uh, different players are going to score for things that may you may not have noticed or whatever. But it's not as though they're going to be doing these actions every turn based on their cards. Right, pumping that thing that converts a couple plants into a point all the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Before I say talk about the actions in mosaic, because it just goes into the next thing. I have things that are slick and things that are not slick. Okay, this right. is an interesting distinction. Very much like the purity of the YouTube channel, will it blend? Just so. Okay. Will it blend? So, like I just said, there's eight actions, and they're all listed on the board, which exactly. is super slick. It even has all the cost of all these actions, so it's very friendly to new players. You're like, here are all the... And they're spaced out on the board, so they're not all sort of clumped together at the far end where you can't see them. And eight actions sounds like a lot, but many of the actions are, take a card from this display. And that's another reason why it works so well, because you're doing this one action. And like I said, you sort of have a lineup when it's your turn or some people, sorry, I, I need to pull back. Some people have a lineup of all the actions they want to do and the prior tories to paste based on what cards people have taken or whatever, A, B, and C plan. So when it's your turn, you can quickly just, you know, activate on it. And then it's the next player's turn. Before you know it, it is back to you. Sometimes. <laughs> and then there's all the, the cards are very clear. Iconography is very clear on what they do. Some of the text sometimes is a little, you know, vague. Yes, a little and, bit. It, a little bit. Very yeah. it's very nitpicky there. But overall, very useful. And there's a clear way to get resources and how to improve those resources. There's no sort of like trick or five-stage process. This is how you get, you know, you take a turn. I'm now getting this resource. I've praised Beyond the Sun for making production part of every turn. And I knocked Space Station Phoenix for making a production turn feel like you were wasting your time. And I think that Mosaic Historic Civilization is kind of in between those two extremes. When you're taking a production action, you're not doing anything else. And you'd much rather be buying a card or doing something on the board. But 
the dance of taking as few production actions as you need feels like a pleasant restriction rather than an overwhelming sense of failure and doing nothing. So I, as I say, it's kind of in the, the, the meaty middle between my ideal of something like Beyond the Sun and something that feels punishing like Space Station Phoenix. Yeah, I love the fact that you can sort of uh, use gold as well to use for resources. Yeah, so money, you, yeah. So, you you know, this tight balance of, okay, am I going to waste my gold this turn so I don't have to take production anyway? I love that right. sort of... All right. and, and as you said, building up a bank, the, yes. it is sometimes it can be very difficult to build up large quantities of money. Typically, you lose points by doing so because it's represented by unrest in a very, very abstract way. Most everything in Mosaic, a story of civilization, is pretty abstract as far as civilizations, uh, civilization-themed games go. But money is just more flexible than any other type of resource. And so if you're sitting on a vast pool of money, you have flexibility and you can react to what your opponents are doing as well as to whatever cards come up. And it's a great feeling of flexibility if you've, been, if you've set yourself up that way and have been willing to take the hit. All right. Things that are not so slick. So tracking the number of symbols. There's all these different awards and things you're going to get throughout the game. And and keeping a grasp on all what they are is yep. going to be difficult for first players. There's a number of symbols you have on all your cards. There's the Golden Age cards and the Civ achievements and, you know, how many... You know, there's so many different Civ achievements, and, and of course, you can just look in the book, but some of them aren't always used, but you can always look at the deck, but it's yet something else that you're going to have to constantly keep track of. It's problematic, and it's it's desperately unsatisfying when you find out that players have made a mistake, because there's a whole bunch of different symbols, some of which have a benefit that goes to the first player that gets six of them in their tableau. But before too long, you start off with five in your tableau, five cards that might generate between one and three symbols each of varying types. It doesn't take very long at all for you to be having a large quantity of cards. There's no good way to sort them because there's nine different symbols to be had. One of the achievements, for example, is have all nine different kinds of symbols. You can very easily not notice that you're either close or already achieved it. And the worst feeling, and we had this in our second play, and it was awkward and unpleasant, mostly because I was being a whiny little child. But someone might say, I buy this, and now I have my sixth military tag. And someone's like, oh, I've had eight for five turns. It's like, uh, all right, so what do... Uh, well, I took my last three turns to try to get this. Do we give it to you? Uh, People talk all the time about not wanting to lose points because of a mistake, because they misremembered something. Mistakes like those, like these, of not noticing because there's no easy way to track, those are more problematic. It's not game-breaking, but it is super annoying. True. We could have been harsher on it and said, well, you knew that that was there and you didn't claim it, so you it don't... It doesn't come naturally to it, us, Walker. Yeah, no. We, we are far too forgiving for little babies with no memory, for idiots, for stupid dumb people. We're just too tolerant of these stupid dumb people. That's We're too me. kind. No, no I'm, I'm I know. Just, sorry. I shouldn't even do that as a joke. My apologies. I retract I, the joke. No, because look, again, our official position is, and we mean this very sincerely, there is no correlation between intelligence and doing well at board games at all. We don't think that way. Other things that are not slick. Uh, is it a city? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and if you built it, did we put money in the tax? Oops. <laughs> yep. It's there's not a whole lot to track. There's not a whole lot to keep track of. But because the basic actions are so simple, I pay five ideas. I buy this tech. There you go. That, that's most of what the, the turns are. But when you you're right, when you build a city, you're supposed to take money from the bank and add it to a box. Super simple to explain. And everyone's like, oh yeah, 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 sure. And then you, you'll forget. <laughs> yeah. And then at the, our first play, there was. 
wondering what constitutes a city because there's two different kinds of city. And some of the cards said, well, this is a city sometimes, but not always. Yeah, some of the but- text was a little misleading. Uh, I'm willing to say that was half my fault and half the game's fault. And then lastly, there are siege engines, which we sort of <laughs> commented at the end. It's really something that people should know. It's just maybe it won't be a tech that always comes up. Right. But there is a tech that will heavily modify what a siege engine does, and only the person that has that tech is able to use siege engines. And we felt that it's, it is uh, powerful if you don't realize it's going to come. Yes. So that, I think, is a good segue into the overall military aspect of a game of Mosaic. I should note that there is an expansion that's going to be kickstarted in mid-October that is going to double down on various aspects of the military elements of Mosaic Historia Civilization. I don't know whether this is a good idea because my Forbidden Games own admission in mid-October, many people, and I think perhaps most, won't have their pledges yet. So uh, that'll be a thing. Anyway, the military, like a lot of things, and perhaps even more so than other things in Mosaic, is heavily, heavily abstracted. If you want to march your armies across the board and kill other armies and sack cities, you will see none of this in Mosaic. Armies exist almost exclusively as mobile influence. You build a farm, that's one point of influence for the area majority scoring, and it'll score you, some, uh, score you a point at the end of the game. An infantry unit is basically like a farm that walks. <laughs> yeah, and I love the fact that it wasn't, you know, wouldn't yeah. bog down with like silly combat. Absolutely. Or someone getting a bunch of combat and just marching around and, and dominating the board because, you know, I, I got to a higher military before anybody else. This nice abstract Exactly like you said, I've written here, mobile influence moving around and giving you that little push where you need it in the certain areas. Yes. Loved the it. The only exception is siege engines, who negate the effect, uh, the effectiveness of cities for area majority going forward. Now, sometimes this is super consequential, sometimes it's not. But it is one of those things where it would be helpful to know up front. I feel like if I were to give a perfect rules explanation of Mosaic Astoria Civilization, I'd want to flag... Three or four techs, maybe, in the deck. Because very often, the reasons why you would buy a tech are are manifold, as I've explained before. It's one of the great tensions of the game. You might be buying it just for the symbol, just for the prereq, for a point bonus that it's going to give you at the end of the game. Or, maybe because it's a toy. Siege engines are one of the most game-affecting toys that exist. Does it completely upend the game? Less than you might think. Is it going to make some people feel bad if they don't see it coming? Quite possibly. Next up, I'm just going to double down on what you've already said about the comparison to uh, Terraforming Mars. Because the leader cards are very much like the corporation cards, almost exactly like it's going to give you your starting resources. It's going to give you sort of your starting abilities, perks, and then it gives you a symbol as well, much like the corporations do. And that sort of right. leads you in a direction for your game. And you get to draft them at the beginning, and there are a ton of them. Is this slick or not slick? I, I'm done. That segment is done, Mark. We've moved <laughs> on. I want everything to be slick or not slick now. Can we make it every... Oh. Well, we can. I can put, I'll put that in the note from for future uh, game reviews. There'll be a slick and not slick section. I Thank promise. you. Thank you. Yeah, and, and, and as I say, the comparisons are, are frequent. The other thing to note about Mosaic when compared to Terraforming Mars is that it's just faster as a game. You can play a five-player game of Mosaic, A Story of Civilization, Rules explanation and gameplay in two hours. Easy. No problem. Now, the attack on another 10 to 15 maybe for setup. But the the same often cannot be true of Terraforming Mars. And ultimately, what you get out of the map interaction in Mosaic, as I've already said, I find vastly more satisfying. Now, that having been said, 
if you're expecting a directly confrontational game where the map is going to be the be-all and end-all, you're apt to be disappointed. And this is one of the things on subsequent plays that we started to pay attention to. How much was coming from the map? How much was coming from non-map areas that where there was still direct player interaction? And how much was coming from just tableau building, where I got the points because I bought that card and you didn't? Which, yes, there's some indirect player attraction, but we don't find particularly satisfying. Speaking very roughly over the course of the games we've played, we found them by and large to break down into roughly a third, a third, a third. But a third of the points come from direct competition over the map scoring. Another third come from those achievements that you get by competing with other players to be the first to get to various thresholds, which become very competitive once you know what you're doing. Your first game is going to be a bit of a, a bit of a wash, but immediately by the second game, everyone's going to be like, wait, how many of the symbol do you have? Okay, and then everyone starts looking for those cards and searching out for ways to manipulate it in a very engaging and, and tense way, I find. And then another third is going to be, well, at the end of the game, I get one point for every this symbol, and so I have this many symbols, and there you go. And that, I think, is a pretty good big breakdown. If there were a lot more points from endgame scoring, I'd be disappointed. Then again, it would be shoving it more towards the kind of tableau builder that I don't like. I suspect it would that would move it more towards other people's preferences, and that's fine. I think people who want a slightly more militaristic or traditional Civ-ish game with lots of military action might be disappointed by the fact that it's only about a third map influence points. But this is one of those cases where tastes really do differ. I really like how they sort of round that all up at the end because they have what is called empire scoring. And you're normally, unless something very weird happens, going to have three of these throughout the game. And this is where you get into the influence for all these regions that are on the map. And a lot of things give you influence. Like we said, having towns, having cities, having military troops, you get a certain number of points. If you have the most influence, you go around to every region, you get those points. And these empire cards are found at the bottom of all these, or roughly near, near, near the near bottom, the bottom yeah. of all these decks. And so once three come up, then the game ends. There's another way the game can end because there's three other decks of cards. These, you know, achievement cards that we we're talking about. If any two of those decks run out, then the game will also end. And with a empire scoring as well, which will usually bring it to a total of three empire scorings. And then you do your end of game scoring, which is all your tableau stuff. And then you get your final score. I was getting super nervous in a good way, energized, wondering how much am I going to be able to get done before the empire scorings start to fall? How many ducks can I get in a row before I really need to start worrying about this? Do I wait to make sure that I'm tricked out before I start really building all these cities? Or do I have to start getting to work doing it suboptimally? Because again, you're never going to have enough time to do everything you want to do, to make everything perfect and efficient and make everything fall into place so that exactly the perfect combo emerges. But the question is, when do you really have to put the pedal to the metal and react to what your opponents are doing? Because it's not just what they're doing, but when the empire scoring is going to come up. And that, again, just to repeat myself that central tension i find very enjoyable and it's how you're going to do it because we're talking like we're talking about before it's like am i going to dump more cities and villages into this region because that's just going to make it worth more because a region is worth uh three points plus how many cities are in it that's how many points it's going to score so if you're going to start building more cities in it increasing your influence. If you happen to lose that, you're just going to be giving points away to other people. Or you can just bring in military troops and, and, and take influence that way. I love this sort of, you know, play on how you're going to do it. Or if you've got a lock on a certain region, you can just like fill it full of your own cities if you can, if you can afford it to, you know, bump up that score. Love all these options. I only have a couple final notes. One of them is about the production and one about is about the theming. As far as the theming goes, I've been talking about Civ games, I, I feel like, 
rather a lot. I appreciate that it's abstracted, and I appreciate that it stays in antiquity. You don't get the absurdnesses of your Sid Meier. It's definitely not in the Sid Meier mold. It's not even really in the Francis Tresham mold either, but it stays in antiquity, and so thus you don't really get any particularly galling or conceptually incoherent bits of some of your other Civilization games. As far as the production goes, you made a crack at the near the start of the review about being able to quickly eyeball whether a given building is a city or a town, and if it's a town, what kind of town, or maybe what kind of city it is, because sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. There are two versions of the game. There's the base version of Mosaic, where everything is represented by tiles and chits. Thick ones, mind you, but tiles and chits. And then there's the one with hundreds and hundreds of miniatures, where every military unit is a miniature with six different sculpts, where three different kinds of military units and six different sculpts, and where every city is represented by a piece of plastic and the two different kinds of towns are different kinds of plastic, it's excess. And we've been talking a lot about this. It's a huge box full of tons of plastic pieces, of course, metal coins and, and wooden resources, because, of course, you need that 17th set of metal coins that's really going to round out your collection. And then you got to modify your ceiling, right? Bring the crane in so you can <laughs> lift the first player marker because this thing weighs a ton. <laughs> Well, it's not that it's heavy. It's just huge. It's, it's this arms race for first player mark. It's it's massive. <laughs> it's really absurd. I, I made a joke about it. Soon in, in five years, we're going to be kickstarting games that are 90% first player marker and 10% game. But I personally would advise you to get the retail edition the, the and forget about the add-on miniatures because it's a lot. But... Then you have a problem whereby it's a little bit more difficult to eyeball who's winning what. You still have different illustrations for the different units. The Egyptian infantry looks different from the Greek infantry, which looks different from the Carthaginian infantry. That's a nice flourish. Good on that. But I wish they'd made the cities and towns a little bit more differentiable in both versions, really, but especially in the context of the retail chit version. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to playing it more. I love how they do the starter technologies. They have this like sort of side deck and you're going to draft these starters and you get five cards to get you pushed along the way. So the game gets going right away. You have your leaders, which make you different than everyone else. Even though your player board tells you that you're a certain area, it really doesn't matter, which is unfortunate, but that's okay. And then there's governments that you can purchase throughout the game that's also going to give you this sort of overall power and or different scoring ability. Lots of fun stuff to do. Lots of interesting trade-offs. Lots of tension about tempo and whether or not you want to wait and do things better later or take what you can because you don't know when scoring is going to happen. I thoroughly enjoy it. I wish the production was a little bit more minimalistic because, again, as we've commented, the board matters, but only for about a third of the scoring after all. So yeah, but things we, could have been smaller. Things well, could have been tighter. Yeah, we, well, we say it's harder to see with, with, uh, with the tiles, but it could have been just simple wooden tokens, Absolutely. right? And, and a quick visualization would be able to tell you what it is. It doesn't need to be these giant plastic behemoths. I agree. So that is Mosaic, A Story of Civilization. There's going to be another Kickstarter in mid-October. No doubt you'll be able to get your own copy then if you're so inclined. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thank you again for choosing to spend your valuable time with us. We appreciate it a great deal in all sincerity, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. 
Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.